anytime you're tightening like this, there's just the risk that there's a lot of like downside risk to the economy. And for the housing market, the thing I'm really worried about and stuff that is really hard to model and really difficult to think about, especially in, in a macro kind of model is things like all of a sudden you hit your trigger rate and your payment goes up a lot. And, and, and how, what happens when we have people resetting at much higher payments at a time when we're also experiencing a real negative economic shock, maybe unemployment rates rising, what does that mean for like household financial vulnerability? And that's where you get um, more negative consequences for, for prices. Welcome to the Tom Story Show with Steve Karish and Tom Story, where we discuss everything real estate or whatever else is on our minds. Welcome back to another episode of the Tom Story Show. Just before I introduce this week's guest, who is a very, we have a big guest. We're very excited to announce to you who it is. I just want to remind everybody, uh, if you've been watching on YouTube and you haven't already, make sure to subscribe. And if you're listening on all the audio platforms, um, we've been getting a few ratings recently where people are saying that they would listen every week, but they haven't actually told us. And me and Steve really appreciate that. So if you're finding any value at all and you want to leave us a review, we would appreciate that. Also, a little public service announcement for anyone listening to this podcast that lives in the city of Toronto. As Steve knows and Brendan knows who I'm about to introduce, Ontario, Toronto kind of copies what BC does, but two years later. So we have a new vacant home tax, which is coming into place in 2023. However, it is based on what your property was in 2022. So the online portal is now open. You can declare that your property was either rented out, lived in as your principal residence. There's a bunch of exemptions as well. Your deadline is February the 3rd, 2023. So to collect all these millions of data, uh, we've given us two and a half months, but you have to declare. If you do not declare, they will assume that your property is vacant. So there's my PSA just as we're getting started here. I'm thrilled to announce our guest today. He's someone that I know Steve watches very, very closely, not in a weird way. Well, maybe maybe we'll find out. Um, <laughs> uh, Brendan Ogmanson is the chief economist for the BC Real Estate Association. He holds an MA in economics from the Simon Fraser University and is a CFA uh, chart holder. Uh, Brendan specializes in housing market analysis and macroeconomic forecasting, is a member of the BC Ministry of Finance's Economic Forecast Council. He was also recently named, not a big deal, the most influential, one of the most influential economists in BC by business in Vancouver. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So we got a lot to talk about. It's been a crazy year. And, and I got a really serious question to start. When you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, they say firefighter, you know, airplane, you know, you know, pilot. Not many of them say economist. But what I will say, these last two years, and maybe it's just the world me and Steve live in, like as an economist, are you starting to feel a little bit like a rock star? Because people really want to know what you're saying these days. It's not just boring anymore, right? Yeah, I don't think economists ever feel like rock stars necessarily. <laughs> um, uh but yeah, it's certainly, you know, it, everyone always wants to talk to economists when things are going really poorly, I think, is when is when we're most valuable is like people want to like, please, please tell us something good is going to happen or please explain what's going on uh, in the world. So if we can provide any value whatsoever as a kid, uh, my the re my kind of trajectory to become an economist, do you guys you would, I'm going to date myself a lot now. Do you remember the show Family Ties? Of course. Tom has no okay. idea what that is. I know Tom's like, I don't know. I haven't watched so, it. I've heard of it. I was a big Family Ties fan. And in, on that show, the main Michael J. Fox plays a character who's like, I'm not conservative at all. But he was a very conservative teenager who was very interested in economics and, and banking and stuff. So that's that was like what got me started down the line of thinking about, you know, getting involved in financial markets and economics as a kid. That's right. my origin story. That's it's not your that origin exciting. story. I didn't get bit. By, I didn't get bit by a radioactive economist or anything. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, when you go to the functions within your industry and you talk to all of your peers, um, like I've watched some of your stuff leading up to this because Steve introduced me to you. The, the the economist that I'm most familiar with in my neck of the woods is Benjamin Tal because he speaks at a lot of the conferences. Sure. Both you and him are really like fun guys to talk to. When you're saying things, I can understand what you're saying. 
Um, how have you taken something so complicated? And, and is it because of the people you're talking to with the public and the real estate boards that you have to break it down for us to be like, hey, guys, here's what's actually happening? Uh, I have been through enough really boring economics presentations to know. And, and I think you, a lot of it's just knowing your audience. So some of it is like, you know, as a younger economist, when you first start presenting things, you really just want to prove to the audience that you're really smart, right? right. And so like, oh, here, I, I went to school for this and here's some very complicated things. And then you, you get, you know, feedback from the audience, usually like, we don't like this, this is really boring. So I try, I've tried, I've been doing it for over a decade just to like, how can I make this more interesting? And also if I have to say this stuff 50 times a year, it has to be fun for me. Otherwise I get really bored too. So yeah. that's a big part of it. It's just like, how can we explain this? So it makes sense to people most important. Second is maybe let's just have some fun doing it because otherwise it can be so dry and yeah. so boring. And, and I think the only way to really communicate and connect with the audience is sometimes I, I find like when I, you know, I'm doing presentations and I have a lot of references like memes and whatever. And sometimes like, are you, do you guys even, are you just waiting for the next one? Like, do you care about this chart of like, you know, yield curves or are you just waiting for like the next joke but what i've got the feedback i've got is always like no it like helps us pay attention basically i think so yeah. i don't know um i find it's useful it's useful for me it's fun for me i've got good feedback so i, I don't know the economics doesn't have to be dry and boring yeah it could be fun and, and i think now as we're going through what we're going through as a country well really north well the whole world's kind of going through this in their own way I think like the average consumer at home needs to know a few basic things where, you know, uh, you know, I, I was even talking with colleagues in my office. So I've been selling real estate for just uh, nine and a half years now. I think Steve's what, 15 years, Steve? Coming up on 15. Coming up on 15. But neither of us, other than little blips in the market, have really seen things change this quickly. And really, unless you're a real estate agent or economist or anyone that's been doing it for what, like 25 years, you really haven't seen this. So if, if I'm someone listening to this, so our audience is kind of split between homeowners and real estate agents and mortgage brokers. That's kind of like who's, who listens to this podcast. So two-part question. For a homeowner right now, what would you say is the most important thing they would need to know about what's actually happening right now? And then for a business owner, whether it's a real estate agent or a mortgage broker, same question for them. Yeah, I think it's a lot of it is, is the same story. Uh, everything in the Canadian housing market right now is about interest rates. Mm. So, yeah, we were we were forecasting a decent year in BC this year because, you know, but that home we thought home sales would come down about 15 or 20% because we set records last year yeah. and said we're down, you know, a lot more than that because we've had a Bank of Canada that is, you know, has been raising interest rates at its sort of high, you know, fastest pace since the early 90s. No one thought that was going to happen at the start of this year. Um, and so for, for realtors, I think the biggest thing is understanding the interplay of uh, the Bank of Canada's monetary policy and mortgage rates, because sometimes it's not necessarily uh, intuitive. Uh, we can get situations like right now, or what might be happening next few months, rather, where the Bank of Canada's around probably at the end of its tightening cycle, but still raising rates. So variable rates are going up. But there's a really good chance that fixed rates might be coming down. Yeah. So you get this very strange, and it happens pretty often where variable rates going up, Bank of Canada overnight rates going up, but five-year fixed rates are really about expectations of financial markets. And so what we've seen over the past month is financial markets grasping for the direction of the economy, the direction of the Bank of Canada over the next five years, and what what we're seeing is uh, ultimately a, a downward trend in five-year bond yields. Yep. So bond yields are you know a proxy for funding costs for banks, for bank mortgages. When they're falling, you tend to see five-year fixed rate mortgages coming down as well. Um, so uh, I forget where I was going with this, but for, 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 for the real estate sector, I think just understanding we haven't been through a real monetary policy cycle. Not really. Like in 2018, Bank of Canada was raising rates, didn't get very far. You know, they think they're neutral rates between 2 and 3%. We only got to one75 we haven't been through this kind of tightening cycle in a really long time. And I think we've kind of forgotten about how monetary policy works, how long it takes. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, um, um, a lot of what I'm doing now is kind of educating, like, 
here's why the Bank of Canada is raising rates. They're legally mandated to keep inflation at a 2% target. Inflation's 7% now. They need to bring inflation down. It takes about a year uh, for Bank of Canada, you know, increases in the Bank of Canada's overnight rate to impact growth and inflation. So all this work they're doing now, we're not going to see until 2023. Um, and, and so understand that interplay, both of why the Bank of Canada is doing what it's doing, because I think it can be pretty opaque to a lot of people who don't have, like, why do they keep raising rates? Why are they doing this? Inflation's still really high. It's not having any effect. So just understanding there's like a six quarter lag between uh, rate heights and, and inflation. And then what does that mean for the next year? Growth is going to be slowing down. What does that mean for the housing market? Uh, uh, understanding how, um, the, how, how the housing cycle relates to the overall business cycle. So what we always see is that housing leads the business cycle. So if you're a realtor right now, you're already experiencing a recession that's, that's probably going to happen in 2023. We've seen mm -hmm. home sales fall in for several months. And that's the pattern we always see before a recession is that home sales come down really fast. They tend to bottom out about two to three months into a recession. So once a recession actually starts uh, in, in the wider economy, then the housing market tends to start recovering and leads the economy uh, in that recovery. We usually have uh, home sales up in BC anyway, up 30 to 40% the year after the start of a recession. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when you're when you're a realtor and you're thinking, oh my God, like the housing market's already so in such bad shape. And now we're going to be in a recession in 2023. Usually though, you know, what I'm, you know, housing all experiences a recession first. And then, so what we expect is that as long as inflation's coming down and the bank of Canada can react the way it normally does and lower rates by the end of next year, we'll actually have a pretty strong recovery if, if things go the way they normally go. So I don't know if I answered either question, no, but I, think I certainly talked for a long time. Well, you yeah. said, whatever you said sounded great. Um, <laughs> okay. So we are a little bit of uh, nerds on this. So like Tom and I will probably just sit here like, just keep talking about okay. this stuff because we love it. So don't, we're not going to stop you at all. Okay, great. I, I'll just monologue about like bank funding costs and swap rates then. Um, I've got a question about the Bank of Canada, and it's a it's a kind okay. of loaded question, but I want your honest opinion on it. So, yeah. has the Bank of Canada lost the trust of Canadians because they were so clear in the fact? And again, it's not their fault necessarily that that the world did what it did, but they said basically, listen, you guys are safe. Go do what you need to do. We're going to stay relatively low till the end of next year, the end of 2023. And now, what's happening? And if you listen to them then and you're getting burned now, why would you listen to them in the future? So your opinion on just like, it has their trust fallen with, with just citizens of Canada? Um, so I'll, from the Bank of Canada's perspective, um, yeah, they certainly did communicate that they were going to keep, so like banks use what's called forward guidance, especially when, when, when uh, the overnight rates at the zero lower bound, they can't lower rates anymore. And they have to find ways to lower long-term rates and keep them low. So they, they do things like either quantitative easing where they're going out buying bonds and forcing yields down, or they do things like forward guidance. So if you think about, this is about to get extremely nerdy. So we're going to might lose some people, but so if you think about it, say the five-year bond yield, which is very important for the mortgage market, uh, you can decompose that five-year bond yield into two things. You've got uh, a term premium for just the risk you're taking for locking up your money over five years. And then a most of that five-year bond yield is just the expectations for what the Bank of Canada is going to do. So you can think of like, say the, the yield's 3% and the expectations component of that is you know 2.8% and you have a 20 basis point premium. Just making up numbers. So what the bank with for that forward guidance is trying to do is say, keep your expectations over the next few years at this very low rate, and that will keep bond yields low. So that was part of their overall idea to uh, stimulate growth in an economy that was dealing with a lot of uncertainty and a pandemic that, you know, especially back in 2021, when I think we made those comments or end of 2020, um, really needing with, with a ton of uncertainty about when we're gonna have vaccinations, how effective they were going to be, what new mutations of a virus there might be, lockdowns, all those sorts of things. So that's the environment they were dealing with, and they're thinking we need to keep rates low. Now, Bank of the monetary policy is always, even with forward guidance, always has a caveat. So this is where you need to read the fine print. Um, 
they're legally mandated to keep inflation at two percent at two percent over a uh, eight quarter horizon, medium term horizon. Uh, and the caveat to that statement is, you know, unless basically conditions radically change. So the problem is on the communication side. If you're me and you know a fair amount about monetary policy and central banking, you're like, yeah, but if inflation's eight percent, they're probably going to start raising rates, mm. right? Right. Now, that was a low probability. Maybe their, their forecast certainly didn't have, no one's forecast really had inflation getting out of control like that. Um, I think when you have a, a audience, though, and this is again about know your audience, if you're going to say that, the headline is going to be Bank of Canada says go, go, go borrow at a variable rate mortgage. And that's what people do because they didn't, you know, they certainly didn't read the speech and they certainly didn't maybe even read most of the article or no, they read the headline. The yeah, they read the headline like everyone else. So uh, I think it's it's if you're going to say something like that, you really need to to, to also communicate the the risk and 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 here is how things could change. Um, so whether they've lost credibility, I don't I don't think so. But it's certainly from a communications perspective, I think maybe it was a bit of a that could have been clearer, perhaps. Um. Can you explain to me, and, and I've had clients ask me this when I when I talk to them about why the rates are raising and how we have to keep inflation at 2%. Who decided 2%? When was that decided? Why is it exactly 2%? Why can't it be 3.5%? Can you explain that to so me? funny. I've got this question. So I've been doing this again for about, I'm not just vamping here. Uh, I have an answer. Um, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never in the 10 years up to like the last two months had a question about the inflation target and like, why can't we have a 4% inflation target? Mm -hmm. And then I've got that question like so many times over the past several, several uh, weeks. Um, so essentially um, the 2% inflation is somewhat arbitrary in that it's a it's a rate that's high enough that we're that you know, say say we want to target zero inflation right mm -hmm. there's kind of an error around that there's a measurement error so there's a possibility that when i think it is actually overestimated sometimes on inflation so there's a potential that if say we target zero we would actually be in a deflationary environment and you don't want that it's very damaging uh to to the economy so you want sort of enough inflation that like um you can have um uh, uh, because, you know, and this is again, a little bit wonky, um, because wages are very sticky. Mm -hmm. Um, you want, uh, uh, you want enough inflation sort of that the, that, that real wages can, can kind of decline. Um, now I'm trying to think of the macro of this. You sort of want, want enough wage adjustment that like hiring can still happen and, and you're not, you know, anyway, I won't get too into that, um, into, into sticky wages. Um, anyway, so it, was, it basically it was decided because uh, in, uh, uh, central banking and monetary policy was kind of a mess all through the 70s and 80s with banks trying to target uh, the money supply, all of this thing. You had, this, you know, if inflation completely out of control because it's very hard to measure those things and the correlation between the two wasn't as necessary or the causation wasn't that solid. Um, and then you had the advent of inflation targeting by the New Zealand Central Bank in the, in the early 90s adopted by the Bank of Canada. We sort of decided, I think, I think Ben Bernanke had a lot of really great research on inflation targeting. And they sort of decided 2% is kind of enough inflation that you're not going to distort kind of labor markets and the economy, but you're not also going to risk a deflationary spiral. It's not too high either. And there, we thought that there wasn't a lot of risk at a 2% um, um, uh, inflation rate that we would be continually hitting the zero lower bound either. Right. Uh, that turned out, we, you know, we had about 30 years of pretty, pretty strong, like pretty um, uh, stable price, you know, inflation, like it just oscillated around 2%. We had uh, what was called the great moderation where interest rates came down over, you know, from, from the really high levels of the eighties and nineties to, to very low levels throughout the nineties the and two thousands uh, growth uh, uh, and inflation weren't as volatile as they had been. So with this, this really kind of golden age uh, up until it wasn't in the financial crisis, um, and that's when we start having real problems with the zero lower bound, because if inflation's 2% and your, your kind of neutral rates, 2%, you've got a 4% nominal rate and it doesn't take a whole lot of cuts to get to zero pretty fast. Right? right. So the idea of maybe we should increase the, 
uh, inflation target to three to four percent has some like pretty strong um, uh, grounding in, in, in macroeconomics. And there's some really brilliant people like Olivier Blanchard, who's a, one of my favorite con- economists, French economist, um, uh, who would argue for a four percent inflation target. The issue then, if you have a four percent inflation target, that means you probably have something like a six or seven percent neutral nominal rate, mm. right? right. I don't think we like. I don't think we like four point two five percent right now. Um, so that's the downside. You're gonna have much higher nominal rates. You're gonna have a lot more with that much higher neutral rate. You have a lot more ammunition to fight recessions because you can go all the way, you know, you know 700 basis points down um, at the expense of very high borrowing costs. And I think if you've probably noticed, people don't like inflation very much. So you can imagine, um, and there is, you know, we do have an independent central bank, but they get their mandate from the government. Uh, so if we had a government, you can imagine, especially in the current political environment in Canada, if we had a liberal government saying, we're actually going to mandate now the Bank of Canada target inflation at 4%. Uh, I, I don't think that's an election winner in, in the current environment. Even if the macro is really strong on it, and there's lots of theoretical underpinnings, uh, I think you, you have to you know, place the theory inside the real world sometimes, and that just couldn't, couldn't happen. Do you think that the Bank of Canada went too far, perfectly hit it so far, or or haven't gone far enough? I don't think we'll know. Um, my bias right now is they probably have over tightened, um, but it depends on what their goals are, right? It, it seems like they're not going to say this, but in Bank of Canada speak, I guess maybe they have, they expect the economy to stall from basically the fourth quarter through the first half of 2023. Mm-hmm. That's essentially saying we think there's going to be a recession in Canada and they're causing that recession through their their rate increases. So um, I think their goal is to cause a shallow recession in 2023 to get inflation back down to normal, just the way that relationship usually works. So um, it really kind of depends on if you think that that level of tightening and that level of um, reduction in demand was necessary to bring inflation back to 2%. When we run our own models and have a, a 4.25% overnight rate uh, and four and a half, I think by the first yeah. quarter, we get um, a, a short and shallowish recession in the first two quarters of the year. Uh, we get inflation coming back. So like, it works like it works in a model like it's it, right. it should if, if things go according to model which we all know they always do um <laughs> then then we should have like a softish landing and that's probably what they're seeing too like our the dynamics of our much 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 smaller less sophisticated macroeconomic forecasting model is very similar to the bank of canada's in, in terms of like how rates impact growth and inflation so yeah, like you could get a softish landing where unemployment rate doesn't go up too much. You don't have too much, but and then you know we have a recovery and rates come back down to neutral. But there's always, I mean, there's always the risk that you've over tightened. There's always the risk that you're tightening and then we get hit by some other shock mm-hmm. that no one saw coming and the recession's much worse. So I think it's it's very difficult. There's not like it's hard to calibrate these things and you're Anytime you're tightening like this, there's just the risk that there's a lot of like downside risk to the economy. And for the housing market, the thing I'm really worried about and stuff that is really hard to model and really difficult to think about, especially in, in a macro kind of model, is is things like people hitting trigger rates. Yeah. So these sort of non-linearities where all of a sudden you hit your trigger rate, your payment goes up a lot, like level shifts. And 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 how what happens when we have people resetting at much higher payments? Um, at a time when we're also experiencing a real negative economic shock, meaning unemployment rates rising. What does that mean for like household financial vulnerability? And what does that mean then for uh, a lot of like more desperate supply coming on the market? And that's where you get um, more negative consequences for for prices. You got ahead. Like our, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you got ahead of me on my next question. Like, oh I, sure. Uh, so first, very, very serious question here: Have you canceled your Disney Plus yet? 
This episode of The Tom Story Show is brought to you by the YouTube for Real Estate video course. Are you interested in creating an engaging, value-driven YouTube channel to help educate your client base on real estate in your market, as well as introduce a new revenue stream to your business? Perhaps you've already created a YouTube channel, but are struggling to gain viewership and the subscribers you are looking for. The YouTube for Real Estate course will provide you with proven tips and strategies on how to create and cultivate an engaging YouTube channel, as well as how to optimize your channel, resulting in higher viewership, subscribers, and yes, deals. But that's not it. I implemented YouTube in my business in early 2021, and it has easily been the best marketing source for meeting new clients that I have ever had in my business, period. Better than expensive geo farming, internet marketing, and open houses combined. And now it even rivals my repeat and referral business. If you would like to learn all the tips and tricks, for meeting new clients using YouTube, simply go to video course login or click the link in the description below and sign up for the YouTube for real estate course today and learn a year's worth of my painstaking research of learning how to use YouTube for real estate in just a few hours by taking the YouTube for real estate course. So go to videocourselogin.com right now and use the promo code TOMSHOW at checkout. Again, that's videocourselogin.com or simply use the link below. Have you canceled your Disney Plus yet? <laughs> no, I mean there's so many great shows on it. If you like, if you like Star Wars, how can you cancel Disney Plus? Okay. It's, it's pretty cheap, isn't it? Yeah, I don't Is know. Is it one I, of the cheaper ones? Yeah, I Netflix think all of them are like giving you an option with ads now, so you can cut your costs in half. Oh sure. Um, but here's the real question. Um, you know, from from your perspective and looking at the numbers and having conversations with other economists and everything that you do on a daily basis, like, are you are you worried? about the average Canadian right now, because there's the people that had the adjustable variables that have already felt it and, and mm -hmm. are, are surviving so far. Like I personally haven't seen like a ton of distressed sales in my market. I, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's coming. Then you've got the people like, I just got that letter in the mail. My cottage just went up $500 a month. I hit yeah. my trigger rate. Okay. And it's not great. Like it sucks. I can cover it, but it sucks. And then you got the people that had the the fixed rate at three percent, two and a half percent, whatever. They have one year left, and if rates don't come down by the end of next year, it's like bam, you know, five and a half percent or or wherever they're at, at that point. So based on all yeah. that and the conversations you're having, like, are are you worried that maybe they went so far that now people are going to be in really tough spots? Yeah, that that's that's the risk that we're worrying about. It's not like our our baseline, but this is sort of you can kind of see how those risks shape up like you know especially if you have a shock to the unemployment rate like yeah you know to unemployment people right. are losing jobs to put it more more clearly if people are losing their jobs at the time at the same time as they're getting a 500 increase on their mortgage that's going to cause a lot of desperation and a lot of a lot of um, uh, listings coming on the market that need to go really fast and that's that's how you get bigger price adjustments or downward price adjustments so um i'm 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 worried about it, but again, like you said, we're not seeing it yet. Like the media and like headlines tend to get way ahead of the data. So like most of the economic data is still pretty good, like as it always is before a recession, but like we're not seeing a ton of softness yet. And you see this in the US too, where they have the same headlines and the same kind of like everyone forecasts a recession next year. Um, but like still really strong job growth, still really, really low unemployment rate. So even in our models for BC, we have the unemployment rate going up to 6% from 4. Point, it's almost at a record low right now. It's 4.4, mm -hmm. 4, all time low. I think it's like 3.9 or 4.2. So we're really, really low unemployment rate. If it goes up to 6, I mean, it was 14% during the pandemic. So if it goes up to 6, like it's, it's, it's bad. It's always bad and people lose their jobs. But we're not expecting... So like, even like a financial crisis situation where it went from four to eight in like a couple months. Yeah. I've so been, uh, it's I've something been that we can handle. Yeah. Yeah. I've been too excited, but I've been asked too many questions. Steve, have you been patiently waiting? I know you have, you're excited. So let's go. What, what do you got? Can I kind of one, one more thing too Please. on the, on the yeah. cost thing. So, um, we, the, the, I'm going to tell a silver lining or there are no positives for the pandemic, but like one thing that did happen was there was an enormous amount of forced savings. So in the in the, the eight quarters of the pandemic, Canadian households saved more in those eight quarters than they had in the previous seven years combined. It's like three hundred and forty billion dollars. 
Uh, and as of 2021, households with debt uh, had five times their average monthly expenditures in just liquid savings. In 2019, they had one month. So like in some ways, we're in very good shape to absorb these costs because of, you know, the, the, the pandemic, essentially. And so this like path dependency, how if we if with this at all had happened in 2019, we would be in much worse shape than we are in 2021. 2022. I don't necessarily have. Well, I've got three notes that I want to address because I've never been able to ask somebody that's uh, as smart as you, Brendan, to answer or at least comment on these things. Um, and that is sure. the fact that, you know, this this is on YouTube, which will attract a certain amount of the conspiracy nuts. And I'm not down that train at all. Um, and then our, our audio side is is uh, more real estate agents. But I want the one thing that constantly gets brought up about inflation is the quote unquote basket of goods. And everybody seems to think that the Bank of Canada is just there to try and tweak the numbers to tell the story that they want to tell. For instance, I was listening to a guy say, well, how come the basket of goods is so much different than it was in the 1970s? My thought is, well, life is a lot different than it was in the 1970s. And I would hope that the Bank of Canada would also try to improve their calculations from the 70s and we're not just doing things the way they were previously so any comments or uh about that and how inflation is calculated because i think there's a lot of people out there that think the government's trying to pull one over their eyes when they're not or the bank of canada anyway is trying to pull one over yeah so for those people i would suggest maybe you can like i don't know if they do this book book a tour to go hang out with some of the people that um, put together the CPI at Stats Canada, uh, you'll find that they're just like super nerdy professionals who take this very seriously and have no interest in skewing anything. Um, you know, they're just they're just economists and statisticians that are trying to do do their job. Uh, and there's some pretty rigid standards they have to follow, and a lot of those are like internationally set sort of agreements on how we should measure these things. So, you know, that's why I was get you know these conspiracy theories things are ridiculous especially if you know some of these people you're like oh like that guy is part of a grand conspiracy like, i don't think so um anyway <laughs> so that's ridiculous you can kind of um you know um you know uh, brush that away without too much analysis um yeah like the the basket of goods changes over time because what we spend money on changes over time that that's what cpi is trying to measure is like what do average canadians spend their money on now no one is the average Canadian, right? No one said no one spends. Well, I spend two percent of my, uh, or four was it four percent of my uh, paycheck goes to gasoline, and thirty percent goes to shelter services. Like, you know, for someone like me, I've got uh, two two teenage boys. I have you know uh, a mortgage. I, I whatever. Like, my basket of goods is very different from someone else's. From like a single person living in an apartment, right? That doesn't need a car and doesn't you know uh, doesn't buying groceries for for uh, two two teenagers who eat everything in the house so like my basket's very different than the average basket uh so what you know what we're trying to measure is just like what does the average canadian spend on and how is that changing over time right and and so you know people have gotten very interested in how that works uh you know 30 percent of cpi is shelter and if you kind of look under the hood on how we measure shelter. It's very complicated. Um, a lot of, I think some, some statistical agencies don't even try to measure things like ownership housing. Cause it's like, how do you measure an asset? Is this really, you, we have to kind of model the service that you get from your house, which is kind of like, well, if I had to rent it, what would that be? And it gets very complicated. Even measuring rent is hard because you have, you know, not everyone gets their, your, their rent reset every month, right? So you have a market rent that's going to be a little different from the CPI rent. So it's going to take a while for CPI to catch up because it's sort of like, well, what share are we doing? And even the rental side has is, is put together a little differently now where they try and like adjust for square footage and number of bedrooms and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated exercise. It's not perfect, um, but it, it should be it's get pretty close. And even when... You know, uh, uh, things like there used to be a, um, uh, I think still maybe this this uh, billion price uh, project thing was called, where um, they basically just scraped prices off the internet 
um, uh, so just, you know, from Amazon, wherever, just like trying to get inflation from the, just collecting as much price data as, as possible. Um, and it matched CPI pretty well. So it's not like, you know, inflation is, is wildly out of control. The most hilarious thing is in the United States, they had the thing, this thing called shadow stats, where it was this conspiracy theory about yeah. how inflation was actually like several points higher. And the most hilarious thing is, so they're claiming inflation is actually extremely high, but their own prices for the subscription hadn't changed in like 10 years, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Like, if you believe inflation's credit, your prices should be much higher. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's actually, I think, one of the uh, sites or, or organizations that's cited in a lot of those comments. Oh, um, yeah, sure. The next thing I had for you, which is probably, even a, the, I don't know, it's going to not be an easy uh, topic either, is right now in the news cycle is the kind of cocky response from Justin Trudeau talking about servicing government debt. And he was talking about record lows, you know, and he almost laughed at the reporter when he was like, well, we're at record low for interest rates. My concern around the future next year of, of the country is I, and I'm not at all smart enough to even comment on this, but this government debt that seems to be double what we've spent in, history over the last two years how how does that get paid what how much of that should be our massive concern we all know that it's not going to get paid back and we're not going to pay off our debt but how do we service the debt yeah and the servicing is more important than the paying back i mean the government unlike you or i is an essentially infinitely lived individual right so there's no like no one's coming to the 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 government of Canada and demanding full payment of, of all of our debt right away. So it's really like, you know, what are the flows more importantly in the stock of debt? And so we're talking about, the, you know, those flows, what is, what are our interest costs as a share of GDP? What are our interest costs as a share of, of, uh, of government revenues, so that kind of thing. And they're, they're obviously higher, but they're not even where they were in like fiscal crisis, 1990s. Right. So, uh, with a with a you know the bank and even right now with yields coming down, the government of Canada can borrow it for five years at under three percent and borrow it ten years for under three percent. So it's really short term debt that's really expensive right now, and the bank doesn't borrow in the treasury market that you know as much as they borrow longer term to finance you know all, all their expenditures. So. It's a concern. I mean, the more we spend on interest costs, the less we can spend on other things. And maybe that means there needs to be some tightening, whether higher taxes or lower spending in other places. But uh, it's it's not a if it's not a concern in the way that it was a concern in the 90s when we had real fiscal crisis, because we actually were in pretty good fiscal shape heading into a pandemic. And we there's a good reason why we've built up the debt we built up over the past two years. Like if we hadn't, we'd be in really, really bad shape right now. Right. So one of the reasons why we had uh, employment recover within a year is because we had an enormous amount of stimulus. If we hadn't have done that, usually you don't see you know, from a recession, especially as deep as we had. Uh, normally, you don't see employment recovered after a recession for, for a few years. Like in, in BC, I think after the financial crisis, it took five years to get to back to the pre-recession level of employment. So we had an incredible recovery. It was really expensive. We were paying the cost for it now, both in inflation and in, in the, the ultimate debt servicing. But no one's talking about, you know, no one serious is talking about the government of Canada being anything close to a fiscal crisis or something. I got, I got one more, but I'm going to save it for later. Cause I want okay. to come back okay. in here. All right. Um, here's my, uh, my new thing that we do in the podcast called ask an economist. We have three <laughs> rapid fire questions. Okay. This is brand new. I just made it up in the last 10 seconds. You're also the only <laughs> economist. So. Yeah. You're the that's only right. one that's been here. Um, when will rates drop from the bank of Canada? Hmm. Um, so again, in our, in our models, which of course are always right, uh, we have rates coming down in the like end of the third quarter. So third quarter ish. Um, if you look at financial market expectations, so, you know, traders betting billions of dollars on, on, um, on what they expect the policy rate to do over the next year. That's about, I think we, we see rates coming down in September. Uh, in those expectations. Um, so, I, I, which is all really depends on 
know, in our model, of course, you have a normal, you know, little, our little computer Bank of Canada uh, sees growth that's negative and inflation coming back to its target, sees that uh, interest rates are set well above their neutral rate and says, well, we all the conditions match for us to start lowering rates. Let's lower rates back to neutral, which is between two and three percent. So if that's the way things go and that's that's the way, you know, all, all models work we should see rates coming coming down and in in you know if even it's almost almost has to so if like right now the bank of canada if you believe the bank of canada or the bank of canada believes itself that its neutral rate is between two and three percent there's no reason if we're in an economy that is slowing substantially and if with inflation back on a trajectory to two to two percent there's no reason for them to be slamming on the brakes as hard as they are so then they would start, they want rates to be neutral to keep, you know, inflation at 2%. And that, that itself means a reduction of their overnight rate from wherever they end up, four, two, five, four and a half down to at least 3%. Right. So yeah. even a normal economy would have rates lower than now. If we have an economy that is in recession and if we have inflation that's undershooting its target, then rates would have to come down even more. This episode of the Tom Story Show is brought to you by the Story Team at Royal Page Signature in Toronto, Ontario. The Story Team focuses on satisfying all of their clients' wants and needs when either buying or selling real estate in the GTA. But don't take my word for it, they have way over a hundred five-star reviews on Google from clients singing their praises after amazing home purchases and sales. From downtown Toronto condos to semis to detached homes, whatever your needs, Tom and his team promise to provide an educated, honest, and transparent approach to helping all of their clients achieve their financial and personal goals through real estate. So there is no need to search bus benches or newspaper ads anymore to find the right agent for you. Just visit www.storyteam.ca to book a call with the Story Team today. That's S-T-O-R-E-Y-T-E-A-M.ca. That's storyteam.ca. This communication is not intended to cause or induce breach of any existing agency agreement. In that first that first drop that we could potentially see, is it going to be like a little teaser, twenty five, maybe fifty? Like they're not going to drop one, are they? Like they've been going up. No, not not absent. Yeah. Some some major shock, right? Uh, I would guess that they'll uh, like titrate down twenty you know, twenty five basis points uh, until we get so over over the course of uh, over a year or so, and that's a hundred basis points. We'll kind of get back to you know, around, around three by the end of 2024 would be my guess. Um, but again, everything depends on inflation. Like if inflation is 6% in the third quarter of next year, even if the economy is kind of stalling, it's going to be really hard for them to cut rates. Mm. So um, a lot depends on the trajectory of inflation, core inflation, especially. Are if, you worried that the uh, inflation, they, they could do something similar and I wasn't around for this. I was, born but not around for it but in the early 80s my understanding is they cut it too quickly and they turned back and then inflation doubled from that point and then yeah, they had to I actually was I actually was there because I'm 75 years old I just look amazing <laughs> um uh, yeah I mean there's the risk there's always like again like it's not so much of a science it's more of a science now monetary policy is more of a science now than it was in the 80s when they had absolutely no idea what they were doing you can tell from the volatility of inflation um, and then the eighties, they had to tighten really hard. Right. And so in the early eighties, they, they ended up, you know, mortgage rates were 20% or 21. All you have to do is ask any baby boomer about interest rates and they'll tell you that their first mortgage rate was 22% or something. Um, so they, you know, I think their monetary policy is probably too loose because they were experimenting with targeting different money supply measures and letting interest rates fluctuate. Um, and then they had to tighten very, very hard in the, in the mid eighties, kind of early mid eighties. So there are always going to be mistakes on monetary policy. We might be seeing a mistake in monetary policy right now. Maybe they're over tightening. Um, uh, it, I, 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 I mean, so they're always going to get, it's not an exact science. I, my guess would be because we're, we're not, we're playing around just at the margins, right? Like 4.25 is not a super high overnight rate. It's what used to be pretty normal in the early 2000s. Um, so coming back down from that to three, like it's not going to cause like in your, in your, so think about it this way. If you just average like the types of models that people use, 
there's actually a really cool website where you can you can see this um, 100 basis point shock to rates brings inflation down increase in rates brings inflation down about 20 to 25 basis points at its peak impact in a year so it's not super powerful right so it's really about calibrated inflation more so than like you have to have a so a lot of what we're seeing right now inflation's what 500 basis points higher than it needs to be with 400 basis points of tightening we can get about quick math about a point of inflation reduction at its peak a lot of the rest of inflation coming down is just arithmetic right like things aren't going up as fast as they used to so like gas prices being where they are now so in bc they're like a dollar 50 they were two dollars and 40 cents or something at one point so when we get to whenever that was it was like october when we get to october 2023 that's a big change in, in gas prices. And that alone is going to be dragging inflation down. So if you just think if, if gas prices stay where they are right now, it'll start to drag inflation lower by the first quarter of 2023. So we're going to have this reversal of what, you know, we had these huge increases, huge contributions of inflation uh, to inflation from gas prices. Now it's going to go the other way. And there's a whole bunch of categories like that. So there's just this natural arithmetic where, you know, we're not seeing this persistent price increases that you know, we're probably going to get two or 300 basis points of inflation reduction just because, you know, gas prices are not as high as they were and food prices aren't growing as fast as they, as they were. Right. So a lot of what we're going to see is just that. And then you also have that pull from, from, uh, from higher rates of, you know, hundred basis points or whatever. So um, I don't even know, remember where we started, but yeah. So uh, I, I think the the risk to, um to to lowering rates too fast is is probably pretty low i think we've what we've maybe learned about fiscal and monetary policy is that if you want inflation fiscal policy is the, the way to go and especially like giving people money is the way to go we had a really hard time after the financial crisis getting back to just two percent inflation if you remember how bad the recovery following the how slow the recovery following the financial crisis was. And that was with rates still very, very low. And it's that we just couldn't generate inflation. It was under 2% for a really long time because we also had all this like pivot to austerity and like governments were like, oh, we, we've racked up too much debt during the financial crisis. And now we gotta, you know, we gotta really cut back. And we had a very slow recovery and we had a very hard time getting inflation back to its target. In the pandemic response, we have the exact opposite. We're like, let's just give all of the money out and see what happens. Essentially, it's like a pretty grand experiment. And it turns out helicopter dropping money to those bank accounts at a time when they can't spend money on services results in a lot of goods inflation, right? I give the, the, the example I used to give was, um, you know, think about, you know, during the pandemic, if gyms were closed, uh, you had to then buy a, buy gym equipment and gym equipment needs to be put together and put in a container and shipped shipped uh, all over the world. So like, instead of spending on services, you took all that services spending the, the you took the, the $30 a month or whatever it cost to go to a gym that you weren't going to. And then you bought a Peloton that sat on in your in your basement and collected laundry or whatever, right? Like it's like hey, you're describing there is, there is Steve. No, there is no shifted, laundry on that thing behind me. Right <laughs> shifted spending spending from one thing you didn't use to another thing. Um, but like that happened uh, you know, in all sorts of sectors where just money couldn't be spent in ones. We had to spend all in the goods sector. Goods prices went way up. We had all kinds of supply chain problems at the same time that was happening. We had tons of shutdowns due to COVID. Factories couldn't produce nearly as much to meet that demand. So I think we learned a lot about like how to really generate inflation, inflation, and 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 and, uh, and maybe we'll maybe we'll learn from that. Maybe we won't, but. Um, it's going to be interesting if we have a recession in 2023, if governments are going to be really gun shy to use fiscal policy because it, it is pretty inflationary. We, we've learned, especially in some circumstances and in that vol in that amount. If, if you bought a property tomorrow, would you take a variable? Would you take a one year fixed, a two year fixed? What would you Boy, personally yeah, this, do for your situation? Not advice for, for anyone no, for, else, just I'm, for you. Not, yeah, this is not I'm, financial advice. No. Right. I have this. Yeah, that's not financial advice. I've always taken out fixed rates just because I I like just certainty. 
I'm not, I'm, you know, most economists think are pretty risk averse. So uh, I would probably take out a fixed rate, but I, I would, I would, I would, I would look now, I would look really hard at a variable rate simply because I, I do. I mean, we know that the, if, if again, and this can always change, but if the bank of Canada is telling you our, the rate we would like our overnight rate to be at is between two and 3%. And right now it's 4.25. Eventually it's going to come down to that neutral rate. They want, that's what the bank of Canada wants, right? If, if inflation's at 2%, then, then rates should be between two and three. Gotcha. So. Um, now let's fast forward here. Um, your job is going to become even more fun for the first four months of next year, because as the chief economist for the BC Real Estate Association, you're going to be quoted in the reports that come out. Because right now it doesn't look so bad year over year, but January, yep. February, March is going to look bad. So have you already thought about how you're going to write that? What you're going to have to write the blurb for that? Because it's not going to be pretty. No, it's not, especially in, in some markets um, yeah, like like Surrey uh, or, yeah. or Langley or Abbotsford, where prices are down or going to be down like 25 percent year over year. Um, yeah, I keep trying to plant the idea like with media, even if prices don't change at all month over month for the next six months, prices are going to be down 25 percent year over year. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard it's a really hard thing to message. I find it's really hard even with our forecast because we forecast annual prices. Mm. And so for like the Fraser Valley, annual prices are going to be up 10% in 2022, right? They started the year up 40% or something, but like year over year, yeah, like we had, it's volume weighted. So if you have a tons of volume at a really high price and way less volume at a lower price, the average is still going to be pretty high. And that's what we're dealing with. We talk about annual prices year over year, but that means 2023, even if nothing changes, prices are going to be down like 10%. So yeah, we can already write, it, write these headlines. Like we know exactly what's going to be written for the first time. Oh, prices crashed. Prices crashed in yeah. February. It's like, well, they actually came down over six months last year. Nothing actually changed in February. So yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm all, I got to think about it, but it, it's going to be, it's not going to be fun at all. It's going to be a lot of edge. It, it's going to be educating. That sounds like excuses, mm. which yeah. is not, yeah. which never sounds good. It's a really hard messaging thing. Cause no one likes messaging that involves math, right? Like here's, here's why this is happening. Here's just arithmetic of why this has happened. That was actually uh, one of the last videos Tom, I put out on my channel was like minus 40% because in, I think, uh, February, I think mission is going to show average price minus 40% in detached. Right. So it's yeah. like, be prepared guys. This number is coming, even though those price drops are already here. Already this, happened. Num this is where the media is going to pick up on in February and March. It's, it's the same thing we get in, in CPI where the year over year number is less relevant than the month over month right now. And you have large changes then like, well, what, but what's happening right now is a lot more important, but we've sort of trained ourselves to really think about year over year in everything, even if it's not necessarily relevant to what's actually occurring right now. It just tells you what happened over the past 12 months. And, and doesn't year over year become irrelevant if things have changed this much? Like if the rates were the exact same year over yeah. year, like, okay, fine. <laughs> But we've gone yeah. up seven times. <laughs> like it's not the same comparison. No, no, it's 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 a very difficult messaging exercise that I'm not not really looking forward to. <laughs> um, uh, I saw something today um, uh, for from Ausfi here in Ontario for the stress test uh, that they said it's not going nowhere. That's yeah. a good decision, a bad decision. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, when the stress test was announced in 2018, I thought it was a, it was pretty bad, pretty heavy handed policy. I think as a risk management tool and like risk management is all about like the one of a hundred times you actually need that protection. And so maybe this, this time it worked. I do think uh, a better stress test and a stress test that worked pretty well during the pandemic or once it was, you know, once it was instituted, is just have a minimum, just have the, the rate be your contract rate or 5.25%. Yep. Like just get rid of the 200 basis point yep. buffer. 
Like if your rate's higher than that qualifying rate, cool, qualify well, at six then. Um, I don't know why we need to qualify people at eight. And, and so many mortgage brokers were telling me like that period of time where the fixed rates were already almost at 5%, but variable was still at three. It's like people yeah. were taking the variable, even though they probably shouldn't have just because they qualified for more and now they're getting hit. And again, that's your own decision, but it, it like yeah. the stress test, I think did work, but then also made it very yeah, difficult push. for people because they had to take variable. Yep. Yeah. Push people into that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there was a weird situation too, I think before it was harmonized where you could, I think, um, uh, high ratio borrowers could qualify at a lower rate. Yeah. <laughs> low it was ratio, silly. Just like made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. It's like you saved up to get to 20% down, but your rate is worse yeah, than the person putting 5% yeah. down. Yeah. yeah. It was so, so stupid. It's silly. Okay. I got a few other topics here. I think are interesting. Um, okay. There is a foreign buyer ban finally coming into place. Uh, the only thing that all the political parties basically agreed on in the last election. Does this matter? Nope. Is this going to change uh, anything? So in BC, the share of foreign investors, so this isn't doesn't include uh, people who are you know married to permanent residents or anything, just pure non-resident, purchases of real estate in BC in 2022 is about 0.5% or something. Mm. During the pandemic, it was effectively zero. Um, and we had record sales. So if your hypothesis in 2000, you know, January 2020 was that foreign investment and foreign capital are huge drivers of the market, I think we, we proved that hypothesis wrong. We don't usually get to have natural experience experiments in macro where you can just like turn off sectors of the economy and see what happens. But we had a pandemic, we had no, almost no immigration, we had almost no foreign investment and we got record home sales and record prices. So seems pretty definitive in that situation that that's not the biggest cause of, mm. of, uh, of, of, uh, of the of affordability in the housing market. And it's almost zero right now. It can go to zero without much of an impact, uh, especially considering the very same time they're banning foreign investment or foreign buyers, they're also increasing immigration by, you know, to half yeah. a million people a year for three years. So we have, we have actually modeled this. We have this, this really cool policy model that we built uh, over the past year where we can simulate all kinds of different supply side policies, speeding up construction, all that stuff, but also a bunch of demand side things, including uh, what happens in an immigration shock. And it splits out, uh, it has a demand kind of block of the model that splits out primary residents, purchases, and investors. So if we just have like this negative shock to investment, you know, investor uh, purchases, but also a big immigration shock, um, you know, that uh, I think the immigration shock is about the, the impact on sales is like 10 times the, mm. the foreign, the foreign right. buyer shock. Right. So, or something like that. It's, it's much, much higher. I think, you know, depending on what on, on like the average new immigrant family, I think in our model uh, has a household size of like three and a half and 50% of them purchase a home in the first five years, which is hmm. about what the data says. I mean, in the census, it's 45% or something. Um, and if you do that in BC with the, with their usual share of, of immigration, I think you get about 15,000 extra sales over, over three years versus losing, you know, 2000 sales or something uh, over two years. So, uh, one way, way outweighs the other. It's like seven times or whatever it is. So, um, I'm yeah, I foreign buyer ban is, is good politics because if you survey yeah. a public who has been told for the past decade that foreign investors are the biggest cause of, of, of why they can't buy a home, uh, there, they tend, turns out they believe you and they, when you pull them, they repeat back to you what you've been telling them for the last decade. You know what the Even best one yeah. The best yeah. thing here in Ontario was that uh, Doug Ford just announced that our foreign buyer tax has, is going up to the highest in Canada at twenty five percent. Which, so but twenty five percent of zero. Yeah, and then <laughs> <laughs> like he just wanted that headline before they were banned for two years. Like it's so silly. It's all just politics, right? Like speaking of, speaking yeah. of useless policies, uh, let's stack BC's cooling off period on top of that. Right, like it's going to do nothing. Yeah, so None we, of these things are going to do anything. I think, and we wrote a paper all about this. Um, I think at the, 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 there's potential side effects of the cooling off period 
<clears throat> adding volatility to markets. So if you are in a really hot market and you can make all kinds of offers, right? You're essentially increasing demand on properties because now I'm saying I'm going to offer on these five houses and I'm just going to use the, the, the cooling off for what you know, deep pocketed buyers might, might do that in a really hot market where they don't want to get outbid. They'll just be like, well, I'm just going to pull out of these three and pay the nominal fee uh, to get the one I want. You're adding demand then. You're now you instead of, you know, maybe, you know, uh, five offers. Now you have six or seven offers on each home, right? That just increases prices. On the downside, it means in a falling market, you're like, well, I, I made that offer, but now I'm pulling it. And we know that offers often uh, or, or, or home sales are often contingent on, you know, I'm going to buy this home and to sell mine first. Oh, you pulled out of my sale. Now I can't buy this one. And you get this domino effect on the downside. So I think it can add, and we told the government this, of course, I think it adds volatility around kind of extreme situations. Were you guys on mute when you were talking falling. to them? Was it, was it on mute on Zoom? <laughs> yeah. Did they not hear? Maybe. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm just not going to say anything. Um, so we told them this. We, you know, we showed, I think we estimated that uh, in a, in a um, kind of a seller's market situation that the rescission period of cooling off could actually add, I can't remember what it was, if there's supply side effects like 2% to price growth. Hmm. Like it's, not, it's not enormous, but it doesn't help, right? Because you're just adding demand, essentially, if I can make all of these offers. That's with costless offers. I think so now there's a small fee, but it's, I don't know. It clearly doesn't, we did a bunch of international research. It's not very good data on how effective any of these things are. I think the best quote I, I saw was basically like, at best, it's just insignificant. Yeah. It just doesn't it's do anything. It's a big waste of time. Hmm. Well, it's just some extra paperwork for Steve and everybody else tons, selling a real estate in BC. Paperwork. Yeah. 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 Um, last question here, and then we'll let you go. Um, we've discussed this on the podcast before. Uh, Steve's got two young girls. I've got a one-year-old boy. And we've talked with people about, like, what are the chances our kids can ever afford to buy real estate in the cities that we live in? Is that something that, you, that you've thought of or, or discussions you've had with your kids? Like, you know, what's your thoughts on that? discussions with kids uh you know you don't have teenagers so you know they don't actually uh, speak to you uh once they're <laughs> like 16 years, years old <clears throat> um at least mine don't um so um yeah it's a, it's a huge worry um in in bc if you you look at demographic projections um by i think 2040 or over kind of like the next 10 to 15 years um, BC is going to have more people in their thirties than at any time in the past 50 years. Mm. Right. And 30 year olds really need housing. Um, and we don't make enough of it. So especially in a city like Vancouver, where we have serious zoning issues, where, you know, we have much of the land that's very close to the city is zoned for single family homes. And so what's the, that land is really expensive, so no surprise they put big mansions on it because that's the best use of that land. Um, so as long as we're not going to fix that, it's going to be really hard to build more housing that's anything close to affordable. Even an apartment uh, in in Vancouver, in the city of Vancouver, is going to be like seven eight hundred thousand dollars. Like it's it's not affordable in in any way, um, uh, you know, for most people. So for if you're just starting out as a as a kid, if you're in your late twenties or something, first job, like it's gonna be really difficult to buy something, and we have no rental housing either. So this is something we needed to fix ten years ago. Instead, we concentrated the entire past decade on how we could reduce demand, uh, and it's really hard to fight demographics. Um, but that's what we did instead of fixing all of our supply problems. Uh, and now, thankfully, everyone seems to be on the same page about supply, but it's you can't fix supply overnight. Supply takes a really long time to fix, and there's going to be big fights with municipalities over it. So over the next 10 years, hopefully we make some progress and we can radically increase the amount we're building and the types of homes we're building. Uh, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult to for a lot of people, young people right now to, to certainly buy the types of home maybe they grew up in, like my kids are in a single family home that we bought in 2012, like going to be pretty tough for them to replicate that in their future. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in, in my market and where you guys are, like if it's your first home, that's been out of question for the last 20 years. Like you're buying yeah. a starter, something maybe basically a condo, 
It's like, I think condos mm-hmm. do so well in Toronto, Vancouver, because that's your only option. <laughs> it's like, right. you don't buy because you love it. You buy because that's the one thing in your price bracket, right? And, and, and more and more, that that's going to be the case. I mean, we're thankfully, I guess, not really building a lot of single family homes anymore, at least in the lower mainland. But like, we need to build a lot more apartments too, because there's that, that you know, millennials are all kind of in their household forming years now. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of them, 27% of the population, the highest the largest age cohort in BC. They got to go somewhere. Uh, and, you know, we have the wealth transfer situation here where we have a lot of very rich baby boomers who are the other largest cohort. I mean, it's like 25% or something. Um, and they, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have parents or grandparents that will just give you money, that's been one of the ways that we've been funding a lot of the down payment hurdle in BC, which is pretty, pretty high. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Honestly, I always, Absolutely. I'm leaving this feeling better about yeah. the economy and the market. That is not the way most will leave a conversation, not just with me, uh, but with any economist. Uh, we're usually a pretty, pretty pessimistic. So thankfully, I talk to realtors a lot who tend to be super optimistic. Maybe it's rubbing off on me. Yeah. Steve, final thoughts? I do have a final thought and it's all, it's going back to the one kind of ridiculous question I have left from earlier. We didn't see a couple years ago uh, the pandemic coming. Last year, we didn't see conflict in Europe coming. Put on your tinfoil hat or put on your crystal or get out your crystal ball or whatever. If you had to guess, just for fun, what do we not see coming this year? Just for fun. What would be the most like what crisis might befall us? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not even crisis. Um, like, just even if it's to the positive, right? Like, oh, the, I was, do you think I was gonna there's say something? If, if there's any justice in the world, just a meteor comes and takes us all out. Don't <laughs> have to worry about any of this. So that would be my that'd be my number one. Uh, a good thing, I don't know. I guess we we uh, a, a best case scenario is that. Um, the economy doesn't come and fall into a recession. Uh, inflation miraculously comes back down to maybe below 2%. Bank of Canada cuts rates. Nobody loses their job. Uh, and we are kind of back on, on the kind of course we thought we would be on. And the sort of, if you remember people talking about the roaring, the next roaring 20s where everyone's got, everyone's flush with cash and we're all out spending. And it's like yeah. record scratch. That like, lasted no, that, two months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, uh, so one meteor of death, two soft landing for the economy. And all right, BC uh, real estate economy <laughs> or economist says uh, we are going to get hit by uh, asteroid. There you go. Can we, can we make that the title of this video? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, my my <laughs> prediction is that the Leafs are going to win a playoff round because I just don't expect <laughs> it to happen. So that's going to yeah. be mine. Do you know um, who the only people more wrong than economists oh. usually are? Is Tom about the Leafs. <laughs> um, Brendan, if anyone wants to, I don't know how like back and forth you are or your availability to the public or anyone listening to this, but if anyone has a question for you or wants to see, you know, the reports that you put out, what's the best place for them to go? Uh, you can go to our website. It's bcra.bc.ca. Click on economics. All of our stuff is there. You can click on get stuff sent to you right to your inbox every time we release something. So that's probably the best way to do it. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you everyone for watching and listening and we will see you next week. Bye. Pleasure. Oh, like subscribe, all that stuff.